Historically and today, our country has been overrun by those with money and power, giving little voice to the everyday American. We're here to change that. Welcome to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray. Well, hello and welcome. This is Judge Jim Gray, and you are with me here on All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. As you hopefully know by now, this we're getting into our weekly series and talking about various issues of interest, timely, and I'm bringing on really interesting guests. And today, my goodness sakes, we have one of the finest representatives of public service uh, that I have ever, ever encountered, and that is a former member of Congress, Tom Campbell, and he's going to be talking with us about, what is that document again called? Oh yes, the Constitution. Clearly important. I, as a judge, have had numbers of opportunities to swear people into different offices, frequently the Bar Association, things of that kind. And so, of course, they raise their hand and swear to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States. Once I do that, then I say, and now keep your hand up and now swear to us that you'll read it. And that gets some chuckles among people. But I swear to you, a lot of people simply have not read that, including numbers of judicial officers that, that and I'll, I'll talk with the Representative Campbell about this too, and I expect his his experience is somewhat similar, but you can't read some judicial opinions and come away with a view that actually this judge has read and is familiar with the Constitution of the United States of America. I'll also say that I've really been heavily involved with the founders recently. I'm proud to say that with two of my uh, cohorts, I have written a musical. It's a new musical called Convention the birth of America, and it's about the Constitutional Convention, of course, of 1787. And I learned from that, and I hope that you follow this and take it to heart. All of the delegates, of course, at the Constitutional Convention, they bickered and they complained and they argued and they they debated numbers and numbers of issues. But each one of the 55 delegates believed uniformly that the most important function of government is to protect our liberties and our freedoms from the encroachment of government. I'm going to say that again. Each one believed the most important function of government was to protect our civil liberties and our freedoms from the encroachment of government. The number two most important issue was our security. So you can imagine what our founders, and by the way, I don't say founding fathers, even though, of course, all of the delegates were males, but we certainly had some founders that were female as well, such as Abigail Adams, certainly. But one way or the other, I believe deeply that our founders would be enormously upset with us if they were to look and see what we have allowed to happen to our civil liberties, that the most important function of government has almost gone by the wayside, and we have allowed our our governments in various ways and maneuverabilities to encroach drastically upon these civil liberties of ours. What does the Constitution say? Well, I have read it and I continue to read it. In fact, I carry one with me frequently. It's a one that's been, been published by the Cato Institute, but it is a delegation of powers. 
from us, from the people, to whom? To Congress, to the federal government. Of course, it sets out the separation of powers, three branches of government, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. But what powers has it delegated? Well, you look at Article 1, Section 8, and it goes through them. And some of them are pretty logical, pretty obvious, to, to coin money, uh, to prosecute counterfeiting, to declare war. We're going to talk about that, I'm sure, with, with Tom Campbell. But it, it has those delegations of power in it. And then it goes beyond that and says, in the Tenth Amendment, in the Ninth Amendment, which is still, last I looked, a part of our Constitution, hear ye, hear ye, any power that is not delegated by this instrument, by the Constitution, to the federal government shall remain with the states and with the people. Hear that again? If it's not here, sport fans, the federal government does not have this power. It stays with the states and with the people. Last I looked, it's still a part of our Constitution, but I haven't seen any material references to the Ninth or Tenth Amendments by any judicial opinions really in my memory. Uh, you go back to alcohol prohibition, the federal government did not have the power to prohibit alcohol. So what did they do? Okay, they passed the 18th Amendment. Fine, that's procedurally correct. And so that 18th Amendment prohibited sale of alcohol. So then, of course, they found that it didn't work. So 12 years later or so, uh, they passed the 21st Amendment to repeal it. Let me say something differently. What about drug prohibition? If we had to pass a prohibitionary amendment for alcohol, which is a mind-altering, sometimes addicting substance, my drug of choice, by the way, why did we not have to do that with regard to these other mind-altering substances as well? And the answer is big government just keeps wearing us down. I wrote a book on on drug policy called Why Our Drug Laws Have Failed and What We Can Do About It, A Judicial Indictment of the War on Drugs. You can get through that title. You can certainly understand where I'm going. But I had a whole chapter called The Erosion of Our Civil Liberties and citing only United States Supreme Court cases involving dr illegal drugs, showing how our liberties and freedoms were edged away because of this failed policy of drug prohibition. And I can cite those. It used to be, for example, that if you were arrested, uh, a law officer would be able legitimately for his own, his or her own protection to search any place that would be within my reach. And that was logical and, and fine, but they could not go into our locked trunk of our vehicle, for example. But over time, in the drug war cases, now they could go. If they had a lawful arrest, they could go and look into your, into your trunk of your car. Oh, but they couldn't open up a locked suitcase, at least for a while, but eventually it was eroded more. So now for the war on drugs, they can go into a locked suitcase. It goes on and on. Thomas Jefferson once said that it is the natural right state of things for the power of government to increase and the power of the individual to give way. Now, we have one of my favorite people in the world and certainly one of our favorite guests, a man named Tom Campbell, who has, I will tell you, and probably to his embarrassment, he probably has the greatest curriculum vitae, the best resume of really anyone I've ever encountered. He got a Bachelor of Arts, an MA, simultaneously from the University of Chicago with highest honors. 
This man, our guest, then went to law school at a place called Harvard and graduated magnum cum laude, 1976, then pursued a Ph.D. in economics at the University of Chicago, getting the highest fellowship award at that time. You know, he's been a five-term member of Congress uh, from the uh, San Jose area and, in fact, then ran for United States Senate uh, I, the world would be a better place had he won, but my wife gave him a fundraiser. We believe so strongly in him and in that campaign. Uh, we certainly wish that he would have won. Okay, thereafter he became what? The dean of the Haas School of Business at the University of California, and then boy, what credentials he has. He was the dean at the Chapman University School of Law. What are you going to call a person like this who has all of those credentials? I have finally compromised, and I've decided to call him your worship. So, Tom Campbell, <laughs> thank you for being with us, your worship. Welcome. Well, th thank you, Jim, and uh, it's Tom. And uh, may I say uh, thanks to you for all you've done for liberty in our country and, and therefore in our world. If, if we cannot protect liberty in America, we cannot be that, that comparison beacon that the other countries and the other peoples of the world look to. So, so thank you. You've been a nonstop advocate. You're doing this show for that reason. You're, you're, you've published, you've run for office, all to protect our liberties, and my admiration for you is at the very highest. Well, Tom, thank you. Uh, you and I do not ha do not have one thing in common. Uh, you say I've run for office, and I have. I've run three times. Uh, in 1998, I ran for Congress as a Republican, uh, and I did not win that. And then in 1994, excuse me, 2004, I ran as a Libertarian for U.S. Senate. I didn't win that either. And then in 2012, I ran for Vice President with Governor Gary Johnson as a Libertarian. Uh, he was our presidential candidate, and I finally decided. I understand why. Each time I ran, I, I used the campaign slogan, we all go gray eventually, and somehow it just didn't catch on. <laughs> I don't think that was the reason, uh, but it certainly wasn't lack of principle or lack of your comparative superiority to the other candidates. Uh, it may be that the educative function precedes the electoral function, so l let's keep up educating people as best as we can. Well, before we get into the Constitution, and it's, it's clearly, in my opinion, the greatest document in the history of the world written by the hand of man. And I say that because, you know, it's not a religious document. I'm not going to get into that. But it is the product of the Enlightenment. It came after rigorous long-term debate where good people rolled up their sleeves and hammered these various things out. It has protections. Uh, but before we get into that, what was it like to be a member of Congress? Congress. You were there for 10 years, uh, and, and just give us, a, give us kind of a, a feel for the responsibility, the benefits, and, and the sturm and drang, if it were, of being a member of Congress for 10 years. The honor was great. Uh, when you become a member of Congress on your first day, you sign a, a journal, and the journal contains the signatures of previous members of Congress, all previous members of Congress. You can see Abraham Lincoln's signature there. You can see the uh, signature of John Adams, uh, John Quincy Adams, of James Madison. Uh, this is a, a very humbling experience to to anyone entering the United States Congress. Uh, also, you 
recognize the awesome responsibility. The, it was about 580,000 members in a dis, uh, citizens in a district now. Uh, I should say persons. It's not restricted to citizens. Uh, and now maybe around 650,000 in a congressional district. And those uh, people have one person to represent them. The United States senator from the state could represent them in a little bit more distant way. But their direct representative is is you. And uh, you have an obligation to inform them what you're doing. In my first term in office, I held over 100 town hall meetings, uh, and uh, over the over the five terms, uh, more than 700 town hall meetings. Uh, so I would learn from my constituents. I would report back to them, uh, and I considered that an obligation, not excuse me, a, a, a well, an honor, not an obligation. It was it was my privilege uh, to represent them. In, in particular, my district was Silicon Valley. And without exception, there would be somebody in a meeting, at a town hall meeting, who knew more about the subject being discussed than than I. And so I would frequently say, here's my view. I think this, it could be I'm wrong. It could be I'm incomplete in my knowledge. Please let me hear yours. And frequently would get a better idea at a town hall meeting. So those are the memories I, I take away. And perhaps the, the, the one, and I, I think we might get to it, uh, when I was able to bring a vote to the House floor the first time the War Powers Resolution had ever been used uh, to demand that Congress live up to its responsibility. When, when we go to war, the Constitution says Congress shall declare war. It does not say the president gets to decide where we go to war and when we go to war. Uh, the, and that was a conscious decision by our founders. A, a very famous congressman in uh, 1846 complained that the president at that time uh, was taking us to war on the whim of just one person and pointed out that the requirement that uh, Congress pass a resolution authorizing war was the most important bulwark against all king, kingly uh, presumptions, the kingly presumption being that the king would put the country at war. The congressman was Abraham Lincoln, and he was complaining about President James K. Polk uh, uh, bringing us into war with Mexico. So uh, history uh, flows, flows around you uh, as you went to the, 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 the chamber of the House of Representatives. I was able to enter the chamber of the Senate as well. I could not speak on the, on the Senate floor, but I could uh, enter it. Uh, and responsibility um, and, uh, and, and, and the tremendous honor. I'll end where I started with this. The honor that the, the people of the United States have placed in you, 680,000 of them today, have placed in a single representative. Uh, it's, uh, I, I can think of no greater honor than to be asked by your, your fellow Americans to represent them. Well, we were honored to have you there, Tom. And, and again, uh, I, I wish you were there still. Uh, I will make no bones about it. I had asked you if you would consider running for president of the United States of America as a libertarian. And uh, uh, I, I, I meant that sincerely. We would be in really good, good stead. Um, Thank you. Let, let's stay with that issue because one of the most important Ah, close to the most important thing that Congress has to face is under Article 1, Section 8, it just so happens, a declaration of war. And you go back to the Vietnam 
conflict, because you can't call it a war because no war was declared, the Tonkin Gulf Resolution. That did not, that was not a declaration of war. That just said, Mr. President, happened to be Lyndon Johnson at the time, do what you think is right. You know, and we understand that the president as a commander in chief has the right and obligation if we're attacked or we're seriously in jeopardy to respond. You don't have to go to Congress before you repeal these people attacking Pearl Harbor. But after a certain period of time, you have to follow the Constitution. So a declaration of war, not the War Powers Act for getting into Iraq or the Tonkin Gulf Resolution or otherwise, but uh, I believe that Congress has abrogated its responsibility in that regard. And we can't look our men in uniform, women in uniform, where we put into battle areas without telling them we have failed you because you're putting your life, your your safety, your your sometimes mental health, physical health, in jeopardy, we have an obligation first to make sure that you're doing so because there's been an attack on our national interests, our attack on our national safety. Uh, I assume that I've not argued you into that. I assume that you believe that. I do profoundly, and I want to give an example that is chilling um, at how Congress has abrogated its responsibility. Uh, dishonorably abrogated its responsibility. Uh, the uh, the uh, United States was bombing Belgrade, Yugoslavia, for uh, 79 days in 1999 uh, under the decision of President Clinton. Congress had never authorized that. Uh, I brought a resolution to the House floor. I brought two resolutions to the House floor. One was uh, declare war on Yugoslavia. It was then called Yugoslavia. Or that the president shall withdraw all troops from the theater of operations in and around Yugoslavia uh, as quickly as their safety would permit. And I asked my colleagues, vote for one or the other, but go on record. Go on record. Because that's what the Constitution requires. If you believe we should be bombing Belgrade, then declare war. And if you don't think we should, then go on record to say that we should not. Uh, the the uh, Speaker of the House at the time was Denny Hastert, and he sent his chief of staff to me requesting that I withdraw the motion. It was a privileged motion, so he could not force it to be shelved. It had the right to be heard on the House floor. Uh, but his chief of staff argued to me the following, and I, well, I'm quoting him as close to, uh, to accurate as my memory permits. The, uh, if the war goes well, we can claim credit because we did vote for the appropriations for the Defense Department for this year. If the war goes badly, we can blame uh, President Clinton. So we do not want our fingerprints on this. Uh, withdraw. And I responded to him very politely and very strongly. I didn't take an oath to be popular. I took an oath to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States. And the Constitution of the United States says Congress shall declare war. We, Our fingerprints are on this, if that oath means anything. Uh, I, I will not withdraw. Uh, Tom, that is the most graphic example of an abrogation of responsibility. You simply nailed it. And that's the political reality. I want the benefits, but I don't want to have any form of responsibility if things go wrong. We're going to talk about more of these things uh, after we come back from these few messages on All Rise, The Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray and Tom Campbell.
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. The Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You are listening to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Well, welcome back. This is Judge Jim Gray, and you heard various uh, messages, including the Libertarian Party, which I believe simply is not private interest motivated. They are in favor of all of us all rise together with libertarian principles of, uh, of uh, responsibility, of accountability, and liberty. And that's where we are. And, and uh, so we're going to talk about those issues here on All Rise, where we will all rise together. This time, we couldn't rise any higher than to have our guest, Tom Campbell, former dean of the Chapman School of Law, former dean of the Haas School of Business at the University of California, and a former uh, five-term member of Congress. So, Tom, you were just talking about us, and off the air, I, I said what I will now say on the air, when you were talking about being requested by the Republican Speaker of the House to withdraw your your uh, uh, bill for, or have responsibility for the war in uh, in uh, Yugoslavia, and then you you went on to say that it was uh, that was a bipartisan request, uh, was that not? It was the uh, leader of the Democrats in the minority at the time was Dick Gebhardt, and he personally called me up and he said, "Look, uh, we let George Bush have his war uh, that was Desert Storm. You uh, you ought to let uh, President Bill Clinton have his." So those are the two arguments, and I responded to Dick Gebhardt the same way I did to the representative of the of the speaker. Uh, the, uh, the Constitution requires us to vote if this is war, and it is war. Don't be mincing words. That's what it is. So it's important to say that it was bipartisan, and sadly, sadly bipartisan. You know, I, the founding fathers, the founders, were just so brilliant. I, I don't know how history happened to get those fifty-five together to be able to hammer this out. Yes, they had 
the instruction from ancient Rome and ancient Greece and Hobbes and Locke and the rest. But uh, my goodness, they were brilliant with regard to keeping us out of war. What is a more important decision than Congress can make or a government can make than to go to war with some other people? But if you make Congress declare war, hey, we'd have to figure out, okay, who is it that we're fighting? Who is the enemy? Let's designate them. Where are they? What is the threat to our country? What is the threat to our national security interests or our national interests as a country? How will we know when we win? How can what will be our exit strategy? Had we demanded that, I don't feel we ever would have gone into Vietnam because there were no answers like that. Oh, the domino theory and the rest. But had we done that, had we had a declaration of war, Tom, I think you would agree that the country then would have been behind it. They would have carried that out a lot better. But a lot of people in the country, me included, felt betrayed by what was going on. But had we voted for it, I think we would have been able to last it out. Uh, the same problem with Afghanistan. I, I happen to believe, and I'd be interested in your thoughts, 9-11 was, was, was an act of war, but it wasn't by Afghanistan. Yes, it happened that Osama bin Laden and his al-Qaeda folks were in Afghanistan and the government kind of tolerated them being there. But had we had a declaration of war, would it have been against Afghanistan or al-Qaeda? How would we know when we'd win it? We could go over and had every right to root them out, to bring them to justice or kill them, whatever. But then we should have been out within 60 days, maybe 90, and, and we wouldn't be bogged down in this hopeless situation of trying to nation build in, in Afghanistan. The founders would have kept us from out being in there. What do you think? I think that you're right that the uh, the defense of why we are in Afghanistan today has nothing to do with 9-11, nothing. The uh, military activity by the United States in Syria today has nothing to do with 9-11. Uh, the uh, Congress gave authorization to the president to take action after 9-11, but it was, as you correctly point out, not a declaration of war, and it had no uh, expiration date. Uh, if you are required to consider war, you have to identify against whom, and uh, you also have the opportunity then to identify when the premises are no longer uh, uh, justified, uh, or the war is no longer justified by the premises in which you entered. None of those, none of those are the case. So, I wonder, brave men and women, God bless them for their their their, their service, are putting their lives at risk, uh, fighting in Afghanistan today and fighting in Syria today. Um, they're no longer in, in Libya, but they were at the same uh, under the same rationale, and the people's representatives uh, did not authorize it. Uh, one 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 last touching example from my time in Congress, Sam Johnson was a congressman when I was. He was a POW in Vietnam. His right hand was uh, permanently uh, uh, damaged by the beatings that he endured in a, a prisoner of war camp in Hanoi. Uh, he uh, could not hold a, hold a pen or a pencil in his right hand. Um, he took to the House floor uh, when I asked for a, a declaration of war or a declaration that uh, we get out uh, regarding Yugoslavia. And he said when he was in a prisoner of war camp, he voted in favor of my resolutions, and, and, uh, and he said when he was in a prisoner of war camp, he was there because he thought he was defending the Constitution of the United States. That's the oath that he took, not to defend a particular policy, but to defend the Constitution of the United States, and that he was um, motivated to vote in favor of my resolutions that day uh, by the exact same feeling. Well, I could have no stronger representative of uh, that sentiment of constitutionality and honor 
uh, than Sam Johnson. Sam, Sam, Sam Johnson. The the uh, veterans of foreign wars uh, as well supported me. The American Legion supported me. Um, these are the men and women who 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 suffer the most uh, when there's war, and they want their representatives to vote on it. They don't want us to go to war, as Abraham Lincoln warned us, on the whim of one man. Yes, indeed. In fact, the families are relying upon us as well of the of our of our military warriors. Before we move on uh, with regard to the Constitution, because we can talk a very long time, uh, I'd forgotten to ask you because you were a member of Congress for five terms, ten years. There's widespread either misunderstanding or lack of understanding as to the pension program for members of Congress. Uh, I've been told by some friends, and and I really don't know the answer to this. Uh, if you're in for six months or one term, you get a lifelong pension of some fashion from the government, and people believe that. Can you talk about this, and, and we'll try to spread the word. What is the pension system for members of Congress? There is a lot of misunderstanding about this. Today, the rule is quite simple. You can participate in the the uh, FERS, the Federal Employee Retire System, which retirement system, which is available to all federal employees. We work, working for in the uh, in the Veterans Administration, working in the Agriculture Department, working in uh, any administrative agency, or as a member of Congress, and that is a pension based on the numbers of years and uh, your last salary uh, and your age. The same as for any other federal employee, no preference for a member of Congress. Uh, earlier, and I don't know the exact date, but earlier, uh, you would be able to be vested into FERS right away. That has now changed. You must be five years, so there's no immediate vesting. And lastly, you can, like many private employees, uh, contribute to a 401k if you wish as well. So to repeat, co- members of Congress are given no preference above what any federal employee would have. And uh, the myth that there is a lifetime pension if uh, you simply touch your foot onto the House floor for one day or one year is false. That's just good to know. And we, we need to get that out because w- when people stop admiring or believing in their institutions, which I think we're seeing right now in our country, the judiciary and Congress mm-hmm. and the rest, but it's enormous harm to our country. And uh, people people feel this, that the people in Congress are the privileged class. Uh, that that really harms that. Let me, let me move back a little bit. I have looked in the Constitution, and you're, you're more scholarly than I am. Is there anything in the Constitution that allows the federal government to be involved in education, Tom Campbell? No, there's, no, there's nothing. Uh, nevertheless, I, I can give you the argument the other way, that interstate commerce is the business of the, of the federal government. The Congress can pass laws uh, regulating interstate commerce and commerce with foreign nations. And the Supreme Court over the years has given a very broad interpretation to that action which affects interstate commerce. But uh, the, the better scholarship and more recent Supreme Court interpretations recognize that if you take too broad an interpretation, then there is no restriction at all. Uh, virtually anything could be argued to be interstate commerce, including as as specious and far, far from the uh, 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 intention 
of uh, the law of the of the words as to say, well, a better educated population will have more commerce. Or <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. You know, another way. I will take it to the logical extreme because there was the case of Angel Rach who went to the United States Supreme Court and she was growing. She had her own medical marijuana card. She was growing her own marijuana in her own yard for her own personal use. And she's a very sick lady. She had three different kinds of cancers or something like that. And it went to the United States Supreme Court and they actually found that her prosecution was appropriate because if she didn't use her own marijuana that she grew in her own yard, then she'd be forced to buy marijuana somewhere else and that marijuana could have come through oh. interstate oh. commerce. Oh, so my gosh. Oh, that's, please. That was the rationale, please. which means that the rocks in your own backyard could be in interstate commerce as far as the Supreme Court would be concerned. So, so what we need are justices who are realistic and respectful of the Constitution, separation of powers, its restriction of the powers of the federal government, that the Tenth Amendment has meaning that all powers not specifically given to the federal government are reserved to the states or to the people thereof, uh, that that means something. doesn't mean that from time to time you won't get an opinion like the one you just uh, uh, quoted, um, but it's, it's clearly erroneous. Um, on, on the bright side, you've got a couple of more recent Supreme Court opinions where they... Uh, struck down actions by the attempted statutes by the federal Congress uh, because they did not have authority. Uh, and, and among them would be application of the age discrimination statute to state employees, uh, employees of the state, and another is uh, making a federal crime out of uh, a, a state, uh, what is usually considered a state crime, which is battery, uh, if it affected women. Uh, I hope it's obvious to, to everyone, I know, I know it is to you, that you and I abhor violence against women. Um, the question is simply, if there's nothing uh, beyond the allegation that the victim of the crime was, was female, uh, does that suddenly take what is a state crime and make it a federal crime? And the Supreme Court said, no, it does not. So the Supreme Court in more recent years has shown a little bit more respect for the, the uh, restrictions on the federal government. Well, people also, Tom, need to understand that just because it's not a federal offense doesn't mean it's not important, that it's not serious. That exactly. I could take a gun and wrote, rob my local 7-Eleven and even shoot some people, which is about as horrendous a situation as I can come up with, but it's not a federal offense. So let me back off a little bit on that and go into the issue of abortion, which, you know, we'll talk about anything on All Rise, the Libertarian Way sure. with Judge Jim Gray. And I don't think that libertarians have a particular position with regard to abortion. It's a very emotional subject, but it is not a federal issue. It is a state issue from my standpoint, and each state should be able to look into it and, and to make its own decisions. We have the concept of federalism in our country, and I think it's still here, that says, hey, we have 50 so-called crucibles of democracy. We have 50 states. We can learn from each other. So if one state comes up with something that works pretty well, and another state comes up with something, well, I don't think so, Charlie. Well, wow, look what they're doing over here in neighboring state. We can learn from each other. Shouldn't it be that way? even with regard to the issue of abortion. That was the position of two justices in Roe versus Wade, so dissenting Justice Byron White, for whom I had the honor to be his law clerk. 
and uh, dissenting Justice William Rehnquist. Uh, and their argument was, and I believe it is a, a, a very strong argument under the Constitution, uh, that a state is exercising its appropriate state authority to decide when life begins, that that question uh, is, is uh, entrusted by the Constitution to the states through the Tenth Amendment, because it's nowhere given to the federal government. Uh, and if a, the state of Texas, in that particular case, uh, wished to define that life begins at conception, or any time before birth, for that matter, uh, and therefore have a reason to, ex- to uh, prohibit abortion, states should be permitted to do so. The Supreme Court's argument, written in a majority opinion by Justice Blackmun, said that the issue of privacy was to be found in the Constitution, even though the words of privacy do not appear in the Constitution. It's in the penumbra, uh, if I remember correctly. The penumbra. That's correct. The the, 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 correct. He said they, that you could find the right to privacy in the penumbra of the Fourth and Ninth Amendments. Well, the Fourth says the government shall not engage in unreasonable searches and seizures. Uh, and from, so he extrapolated from that to say that, therefore, there is a zone of privacy, uh, and therefore a woman must be allowed to decide uh, matters of her own body. Well, there's no question a woman should be allowed to decide matters of her own body. The issue is when there's another life involved, then can the state of Texas or any state uh, decide that a woman's right to privacy might have to give way to a a person's right to live? Uh, at that point, you have a 14th Amendment issue, which is to say, suppose it was an abortion at a state hospital. Suppose the state funded abortion. So take the example now of a state that permits abortion, like California did and, and does, but did at the time of Roe v. Wade, or or, or New York, uh, the, 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 the you could look at the Constitution and say if a child if 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 if, if a life begins before uh, birth, if it, whether it begins at conception or not, if it begins before birth, then the state is within its rights to say, uh, my gosh, we cannot t- take life without due process of law because the Fourteenth Amendment prohibits the state from depriving any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Uh, so you have as a strong an argument one way on the on the uh, matter of when life begins. Um, I should say a stronger argument for the state than than for the federal government, and uh, the Tenth Amendment should have um, should have made that clear. Uh, so where are we today? The Supreme Court uh, is, I would say, right on the cusp of reversing Roe versus Wade. Uh, I would, I count. I try to do that as a law professor. I count justices, uh, and I count four who are prepared to reverse Roe versus Wade. Uh, and, and and this is really important for your listeners to know. If uh, it comes up, and it might at any time, because any four justices can bring a case up to the Supreme Court. You don't need five to set a case for argument. You need only four to set it for argument. Uh, the swing vote would be Chief Justice Roberts. If uh, if Justice Ginsburg leaves the court and President Trump is able to appoint a replacement to for Justice Ginsburg, then I would count five votes, not counting Roberts. And either my present calculation, Chief Justice Roberts, neither in my present calculation or that. Now what and, and this is the important point. What happens if Roe versus Wade is overturned? Then each state decides whether to have an abortion law or not. And those states that believe the woman's right to privacy should be more uh, honored than the potential life or the life if you begin life if you if you believe life begins at conception, uh, they would they would uh, permit abortion. If, however, a state comes to an opposite conclusion as Texas did and as Texas uh, argued in Roe v. Wade, then then they would be able to to uh, prohibit abortion. Uh, that. 
that is is uh, a, a consistent argument with the constitutional scheme, Jim. You know, to our listeners, you have just heard a recital of an educated man who was aware, who is articulate. I didn't set him up on this. He just gave us this analysis of a completely complex issue. This is another reason why I just admire Tom Campbell so much, and I'm going to vote for him for president anyway. But uh, We'll talk about that a little bit later when we come back after these words on All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray and his wonderful guest, Representative Dean Tom Campbell. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. The Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You are listening to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Well, welcome back. This is Judge Jim Gray and his wonderful and special guest, uh, Representative Tom Campbell. Uh, And uh, we are here on All Rise. Yes, when a Judge enters the courtroom for the first time during the day. Most bailiffs will yell out the words, all rise, but that's not meant for the glorification of the judge. It's meant for respect of the system. But here on this show, the all rise really translates to mean if we employ libertarian values, libertarian principles, libertarian approaches, we will all rise together. So we're talking about these, and these are really complex issues. They're complicated, uh, and unfortunately, they get demagogued where, okay, Mr. Campbell, Tom Campbell, was was telling me off the air that, well, if Roe v. Wade were to be reversed, uh, then we should explain the rationale to people. The answer, in my opinion, unfortunately, is no, it's just subject to demagoguery. We're using so-called leaders to 
to exploit these various issues for their own political gain. And uh, we heard that exploitation earlier when he was talking about the War Powers Act. That's called con- that's called politics, which is distasteful, and uh, uh, that's why I so strongly wanted Tom Campbell to win the U.S. Senate race and to stay with us as a public servant. He's really just a great fellow. Tom, I'm going to ask you, this may be a, a softball pitch as well. I asked you about education. Is there anywhere in our Constitution that says that the United States government can be involved in our health care? Uh, no, there is not. Uh, the same uh, stretched uh, uh, arguments regarding interstate commerce would no doubt be advanced by those who say that it could. Uh, but you take the words of the Constitution as they were written and I believe as they were intended, and you would have to have regulation of interstate commerce. Uh, so the the question occurs on health care. Uh, if there is a provider of health care uh, working across state boundaries, uh, let's say sending uh, uh, pharmaceuticals across state boundaries, and the federal government is worried that during the passage across a state boundary, a, a vaccine uh, might not be refrigerated properly uh, so that it would be uh, damaged, become dangerous perhaps in transit. Yes, then that's the level where you'd be quite fair to say the federal government has a role because it's interstate commerce, not, not because it's, it's, uh, it's health. Where this was tested at the Supreme Court most recently was uh, Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act. I give it the name that you know, either side wants to use, uh, where, the, where the, the law said we will require um, employers to provide and we will require Americans to carry um, health insurance. And we will give to the federal government the right to specify what, what will be in that health insurance. So you might have health insurance that you think is adequate for where you are in life and what your budget fits, but uh, the government is, co- is going to tell you, no, you have to have more or of a different kind. My wife and I do not have children, for example. It doesn't matter. We have to have health care that covers children. Uh, do you want to so have some of would- mine? You're welcome to take some of my children. <laughs> I'm sure they're listening to the uh, to the broadcast, uh, Jim. But so, so the, the man said that in jest, children. Uh, <laughs> so the answer would be, if it affects interstate commerce in the way that I described, but in the uh, case of Obamacare, Affordable Care Act, uh, five justices of the Supreme Court said that that was going too far because it wasn't regulating commerce, it was creating commerce. It said you must buy an insurance policy and an insurer and an employer must provide the insurance um, and they held that there's a difference between regulating commerce and creating commerce. Why then did Obamacare get uh, upheld, or Affordable Care Act get upheld? And the tax. answer was because one one justice, Chief Justice Roberts, said, uh, we can call it a tax. Here's the, here's the deal. You're going to be taxed more if you don't have health insurance, taxed less if you do. And when you fill out your income tax every year, that will be uh, one of the terms uh, that will be uh, applied. And so the 16th Amendment passed in 1913, which gives Congress the right to uh, lay and collect taxes on income from whatever source derived, those are the words, uh, would be stretched far enough to include, if we can tax income, we can create deductions and 
um, we'll call it a tax, not a penalty, if you don't uh, have uh, health care. And uh, th- to me, that that's a stretch beyond the breaking point. Chief Justice Roberts was wrong in that, if, if, uh, but he was the swing vote, so, there, so Obamacare, Affordable Care Act, was upheld. But just note, if that were true, then the federal government could regulate anything simply by putting a tax on its absence. So uh, give me what you would consider the most uh, local thing possible. Uh, you'd previously given me the person who grew marijuana for her own consumption. Well, federal government will put a tax on people um, who uh, grow marijuana, um, but it, the uh, the tax shall be uh, waived if you uh, report yourself. And of course, reporting yourself will then get you in- indicted by the United States Attorney for growing marijuana. There you go. You know, I go back to law school and the the distinction with regard to the interstate commerce, because that is the 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 term that is used to justify many, many intrusions was the mudflaps case. And I don't remember which it was, but the federal government said, no, states cannot cannot decree the mud flaps that will be used by various trucks because you'd have to go to the inner to the state line and then change your mud flap every time you went from one state to another and that hinders commerce and i've always understood that that would regulate commerce but going the way chief justice roberts did on the health care that was the most political determination from the Supreme Court, in my view, since Bush versus Gore. And I was just sorry to see it. That was a political decision. None of the parties even raised the issue of a tax. He just created that himself. And I don't like judges being involved in politics. Well, I think he, I think you're right. Uh, Zablocki versus Red Hill is the case to which you refer, the famous <laughs> mudflaps case. And uh, yeah, you can see the federal government saying that it's a bit like putting up a toll a toll gate. You cannot put up a toll gate between Indiana and Illinois. That would interstate that would affect interstate commerce. Fine, but uh, to say, well, I can put up a, a tax, and you'll be taxed if you have a toll. If if, if, if put it this way, if, if we will tax you if you fail to do something the federal government wants, whether it's a toll gate or not. Uh, then, then if you're no longer engaged in interpreting the Constitution. You're engaged in, in torturing words to make the outcome that you think is politically desirable. And, and I, I, I criticize Chief Justice Roberts. I think he thought that striking down Obamacare would be uh, the wrong thing politically, and so he found a way to do so. And may I note, he lost the votes of the of the conservatives. He actually didn't have the votes of the liberals either. They they thought that it would be commerce. Just go ahead and regulate commerce. You know, what's the problem with that? Only Justice Chief. Justice Roberts thought, you cannot call it commerce, but you can tax it. That was, uh, that was an original by him, and I think to his shame. Tom, um, you said something earlier that when you were in Congress, you took great uh, pride, but also responsibility, because you were representing something in the order of 650,000 people. I'm going to ask you something, and bear with me, that when we passed the Constitution, and we have created the House of of Representatives. Each representative at that time was representing somewhere in the order of 32, maybe 35,000 constituents, 35,000 people. What if we were to go back to that system now and so require each member of Congress Congress to represent that same number, say 35, maybe 40,000 people. Well, quick mathematics would tell you we'd need something between five and 6,000 members of the House of Representatives. That's untenable. Well, is it really? How about the idea that we bring it back to that, 
But we do not have the members of the House going back to Washington. They stay home. They stay in their in their location. They can con- they can contact each other through the internet publicly, privately. They can vote. They can caucus. They can debate. They can do all of that over the internet. And then, of course, they'd be more local. You'd see people at the hardware store, and you'd stay local, and you'd you'd stay in with them. And it would also have the I think rather substantial benefit of shielding them from lobbyists. That if you're going to have five or six thousand members of Congress all throughout the country, it's going to make it really difficult for lobbyists to go and pigeonhole them uh, and be able to do that. They would be paid less. They wouldn't have the co- the office in in uh, Washington with all that staff, and they'd be more local. And of course, you could provide information to them. Members of the Senate would go the same way that they do now, uh, but they'd be more responsive. What do you think about that idea? And it would not be on the Constitution. We could get that, but only from a vote from Congress, which is somewhat unlikely to happen. But uh, what do you think of that as a proposal? Well, the argument the other way is that the deliberative function of Congress would be diminished if you don't actually meet with people. Uh, and maybe the rebuttal there is, well, you can meet with people virtually. So if you were to take a 1,000 members of the House of Representatives, if that's if that, well, I'm sorry, I think you said might be 10,000. I don't know. What the I think it's somewhere around four to 5,000, I think. Is four to 5,000. So, so you're not going to have the five, five, four to 5,000 people deliberating with each other uh, and and if they went to Congress, you wouldn't either. Uh, so the issue is, will that diminish the deliberative value for all the good that it does? And I see your point about smaller districts, more responsive, closer to home, uh, less influenced by lobbyists. All of that, I can stipulate, is true. Uh, but you lose the deliberative uh, side. Uh, I found when I was in the House of Representatives a value of the uh, of, de- of the deliberation. Uh, Congress does have one of every kind, you, <laughs> whatever kind it is you're asking, and and I frequently observed it as a cross section of America. Uh, they're they're heroic and the less heroic. <laughs> Some you can you can fill that in with any examples you want without me involving myself with slander of anybody or undue praise of anybody. Uh, so that would be my concern, Jim, that the deliberative function would be would be lost. Uh, and so are there other ways of controlling the being out of touch? Are there other ways of controlling the influence of, of lobbyists? And uh, I think the election system, if it's freely open, if you don't have the favoritism for the two major parties, uh, which it now exists in all 50 states, there's a duopoly and they protect themselves. If you have district lines that are drawn by neutral uh, commissions as opposed to the people who benefit from them. And if you have, I think what you should have, a restriction that if you only people who can vote for you can contribute to you, uh, you can't vote, can't contribute, then I think you'd get a lot of the problems and not give up that deliberative uh, advantage. Okay. Uh, thoughtful answer. Thank you. Change the subject once more, because I've been, been planning this to cause have somebody that really has been there and is intellectually uh, and as well as practically uh, oriented. The 14th Amendment. When was it passed? Well, let's see, a few years after the Civil War ended in 1868. And it says at the beginning, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. Now, that has been interpreted and I think misinterpreted to say that if, for example, a woman were on a plane from Mexico City to 
uh, Toronto, and it happened to stop for refueling in St. Louis, who gave birth to a child in St. Louis, that child would automatically be a citizen of the United States. That is, of course, the way that this 14th Amendment has been interpreted. And, of course, it's given rise to numbers of quasi-legal or illegal uh, people in China, for example, importing a lot of pregnant Chinese women who can then have their babies here and then have them be citizens. And then they they called it an anchor baby, but maybe themselves get citizenship. What I think the interpretation should be, and Tom, I'll ask you this because you're more into this than I am, subject to the jurisdiction of the United States of America does not mean that if you come to a traffic light and it's red, you stop. Yes, that's the, the, the laws of the United States, but it means people that are in effect residents here, people that live here. And if you were born here and you are a resident here, then you could become a citizen. And by the way, 1868, we were talking about the freed blacks. We we're talking about the freed slaves. They were the people. You can't say a slave because that was that would be difficult to come down with. So they were born here. They were residents subject to the jurisdiction. And I think that Congress meant only for those people who were here, not transitionally, not but but just they were the ones meant to be citizens. I wouldn't change the law retroactively, but I would say, you know, as of January 1st of 2020, that's going to be the rule and have that just interpreted by the courts. What do you think? I think you're stretching the words beyond their natural meaning. So with respect and tremendous affection, I disagree. Uh, we, we were earlier saying we don't, we want judges, justices to read the Constitution's words and apply the words. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States. In your hypothetical of the woman who has a child in a stopover in the St. Louis airport, that person was born in the United States. Is that child subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. Does the United States have jurisdiction over the St. Louis airport? Yes, it does. So if, you, if, you, if your idea is a good one, then you should test it or you should advance it in the context of amending the Constitution to deny, to change the interpretation of birthright citizenship. But I can't read those words any other way. A person born in the United States, uh, so maybe the question is, well, who's subject to the jurisdiction? I think the example there was the Indian nations. So we had an attitude, it was an attitude we had an interpretation uh, that uh, the Indians were still sovereign nations. Uh, for that reason, American Indians were not considered citizens until well into the 20th century. Uh, so that was who was excluded, because they were sovereign nations, not subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. So I think that's a much more natural interpretation of the words. And take your argument on the, on the merits of the desirability of changing that to the process for amending the Constitution. Okay. You know, we talk about these things on All Rise, and uh, we, we can discuss these things openly. And Tom Campbell, I, I give serious weight to your discussion and, and your, your logic. Uh, I think under your interpretation that subject to the jurisdiction of the United States is probably surplusage then. But uh, at any rate, we'll see. Uh, I'm not able to make that decision right away. But Tom, thank you for being with us. Thank you for spending your time with us. It's truly been a pleasure listening to such an intelligent, articulate, experienced fellow. Uh, and you're doing wonderful work, and we just appreciate it. So that's where we are. 
that's another edition of All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. You've heard us discuss the Constitution. You've heard us, in effect, say that it sh we shouldn't. I don't think we should have a Department of Education. I didn't ask Tom that, but uh, I think it is probably not a constitutional United States government function. Bring it back to the states. Bring it back to the local communities. That's what the Ninth Amendment says. That's what the Tenth Amendment says. I'm also, by the way, and I'm moved to say this, I have written a musical called Convention, The Birth of America. The last song in it, which is a uh, uh, an encore, is called You Are the We, and it has George Washington looking at the audience saying, now it's you, you are the people, it's you, you are the we. It's up to us. Carry it forward, carry it on. Take our obligations under the Constitution seriously. Tom Campbell does. I try to as well. We all should because the soul of the United States of America is our freedoms and our liberties. And in my view, our soul is under attack today by our very own government. Our founders would be upset. We should be upset too. It's up to us. So there you are. That's what I think from my lofty perch. No, it's the lofty perch of Tom Campbell this time for All Rise. Join us again, and we will talk, talk about another interesting issue. In the meantime, thank you. Life is good. Thanks for listening today. All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray can be heard every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We know you'll want to join us again next week and tell your friends that help is on the way. Strengthen my thoughts that help us control.